You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get right to our next guest, Mike Mullaney, Director of Global Markets Research at Boston Partners Global Investors. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, as, as we really continue our focus on the U.S. Federal Reserve. The real challenge for a lot of investors is, will this Federal Reserve move to such a point that it may push the U.S. economy into a recession if we're not already in one already? How do you, how do you think about that? Well, we gauge it based upon what their targets are for their uh, their inflation forecasts. And that we look at core PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index, which is really what they focus on. And if you look at the most recent dot plot they came out with last week, um, you know, they've got that at the end of 2023 at 2.7%. So to drop from where we are right now, which I believe is 4.9% down to 2.7%, it's a pretty substantial drop within a relatively short span of time, roughly about 18 months. Um, it has been accomplished before. Uh, we've seen that kind of a drop over that kind of a time frame uh, from a historical standpoint. Uh, in two instances since 1960, but uh, one was during basically the the, the the recession that was caused by the Arab oil embargo back in 1974-75, and the second one was back in the in uh, the Volcker era when he burst the prior inflation bubble during the latter part of the 1970s. So to to have that kind of a drop in core PCE over 18 months has generally been associated with the recession. Uh, both times that we've seen that once again since 1960. By the way, Arthur Burns also, I believe, at one point got inflation to, um, well, well, where it looked like it was under control and then failed to continue. Then inflation came roaring back in the uh, latter half of the 70s, right? Um, basically, he blinked. Is it is it a concern with this Fed that they're going to, you know, raise to three and a half, four, four and a half percent and, and get inflation on the way down, but then be confronted by a recession or a bigger market sell off and then start cutting again. Yeah, I think that's probably, you know, something that's in the back of most investors' minds, what they'll do if they'll balk at this, if they really will do pull a Volcker or they'll pull a Burns, one of the two. 
And then um, I think the way to look at that would be that watch their once again their inflation forecasts and their and their and their financial projections going forward at the at the meetings that are coming up. Um, if they balk and they say once again that it, you know they're still talking about a two percent uh, target inflation for PCE, not even the two point seven percent, which is uh, once again for the end of two thousand twenty three. Um, if they balk and they they start saying, well, you know, two percent is really an unrealistic number because of structural problems that we can't control, and they start raising that, I think that's probably a greater concern for investors because that brings in more of a stagflation environment potentially going forward. So, Mike, where you have the stock market off twenty percent? Is that pricing in a recession? Uh, soft landing, not recession. Um, historically, the last four recessions that we've seen, the market's been down over 31%. So if indeed we are about to you know, embark on a recession sometime, maybe not in 2022, but most likely in 2023, once again, if the Fed sticks their, to their inflation goals, then the market still has additional downside from this point. President Biden now saying that a recession is not an inevitability. Uh, Elon Musk counters that well, we're definitely going to have a recession at some point. You can count on that, unless we've ended the business cycle, right? Um, but he says it's he thinks it's more likely than not in the near term. And that call is growing in terms of weight. Um, more and more uh, uh, economists on the street are saying, "Look, it's it seems um, maybe fifty percent or higher the odds of a recession between now and say twenty twenty four. Is it is it possible we get a a light recession and pull out quickly? Uh, based upon the magnitude of the change that we've seen in inflation, you know, it's gone up over 5% in a one-year period. Um, that's pretty much almost unprecedented. So to be able to get that under control, I don't think a light recession does it. It's probably going to have to be something which is more severe. The question is how you know, long-lived it is. It may not have to last all that long, but I think it's going to have to be relatively deep basically to flush the system again and get things back to a kind of a, a neutral drawing board from an inflation standpoint. So, but what about um, different sectors? Could we have a recession uh, spares, for example, the finan financial sector? Please. Well, most likely, if you look historically, what sectors have done well during, you know, more inflation-induced recessionary periods, it's usually been energy materials. So you could see energy materials still in positive territory, Maybe not, you know, by the end of this year. Although energy is up a lot still this year, but you could still see um, those two sectors performing reasonably well in an inflation-induced recession. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you would hope that most likely financials would do well on the increase in interest rates, which generally have a positive effect on banks' net interest margins. Uh, but we haven't seen that as of yet. Part of the reason is that loan growth has been, you know, pretty much right. uh, stubborn at about four percent for banks right now, and it hasn't really grown that much. All right, Mike, your Red Sox are playing five forty-four baseball. They're six games above five hundred, but there's thirteen That's and a half games. Behind my New York Yankees, what are you? What are the folks in Boston thinking this year? We've got Mo. We've got Mo right now, so <laughs> Mo is on our side. That's all I can tell you right now. So uh, we've been doing well for the last probably three weeks, and hopefully that's the turn that we needed, uh, much like we saw basically at the end of last season. Quite frankly. All right. See, you know, Mike's all over our Boston, uh, you know, baseball stuff. Mike Mullaney, director of global markets research, Boston Partners Global Investors. Is it still the case that the Red Sox like? Um, look all 
bearded and mustachey while the New York Yankees yeah, have to be clean much. shaven. Although the, one of the Yankees has a, a mustache, I noticed. I'm not sure what's going on there. But I yeah. think that's increasingly accepted. Look around this office. More and more of our smartest you know, reporters, analysts, no, and economists. No, no, no thank have, you. No, thank you. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. June is Pride Month and a month when we're focusing on equality issues here at Bloomberg. Today, we bring in Rhonda Vonche Sharp, founder and president at the Women's Institute for Science, Equity and Race, to discuss her recent Bloomberg piece on increasing black economists in the workforce. Rhonda, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about, again, uh, the, the economics uh, business and the economics environment uh, and trying to increase black economists in that workforce. First of all, thank you for having me. And before I talk about that, I want to make sure that we're clear on some definitions because there are economists who are economists by their job titles, but aren't PhD level economists. And my article is focused on PhD level economists for a couple of reasons. One, they are the folks who educate undergraduates because econ departments primarily hire PhD economists. So if indeed you believe that if you see it, you can achieve it. If you don't have faculty members who are black, then you may not see it as a as a possibility for you. And I'd also like to acknowledge um, a black economist, Rhonda Williams, who was the first, I think, Black economist that many of us think about who did LBGTQ issues. And I think Rhonda's been dead about 20 years. The International Association for Feminist Economics gives a prize called the Rhonda Williams Prize that is to acknowledge women feminist scholars who are both activists and um, scholars. And so I just want to make sure that we're clear about Economists are those with PhDs, not those whose job titles say well, they are. Well, and um, what, what I would consider incredibly important, Rhonda, is um, students need to get a diversity of opinions, right, and uh, viewpoints. And if Absolutely. all of their professors in econ or in anything, frankly, are just white, then um, they don't get that they don't get to see another perspective and they could very well develop their own perspectives of course 
But I would think it's key, especially to, um, you know, better universities that pride themselves on giving a better education to, uh, to provide students with that kind of broad-based education. So, so I, I, I agree and disagree. And so the ways and I agree is that ideology, the way that you think about problems are absolutely important. And we want to see, have all of our students see a diversity of that. I think where, where I disagree is the assumption that any one of a particular racial group provides a particular perspective. So when I advocate to have more um, black economists, and this is also a good point for me, um, time for me to make this point in that some of the emails that I've received have you know, talked about Asian economists and that if you look at the data for economists broadly, we are not producing many economists who are American born or permanent residents across any racial group. About 62% of economists at the PhD level are those who are temporary residents. So we do a great deal of, I would say, exporting that education. So um, so, I, so I just want us to be, be cautious there that the reason that I want black economists is Partly because there is this thought that there's an ideology, but I think where the biggest difference is is the lived experiences that Black economists bring. Um, and, and while some of that can have some commonalities, if you're a low income or first generation student, there will be some shared experiences. One of the things that we know in America is that people don't assume that whites are poor. They don't assume that Asians are poor. They assume that black and Hispanics are more likely to be poor because that's so much of what we hear in the rhetoric. So it is more about lived experiences to approach the problems. The way that we're all trained is essentially the same. It is our lived experience then may alter how we look at a problem. So Rhonda, here at Bloomberg, we're all about numbers, all about data. I wonder if you could just kind of put in context the percentage of black PhD economists that are out there and maybe how that's trended over the last few years and, and kind of where you'd like to see it go. Um, okay, so so there's sort of two ways to sort of think about this. Generally, when we talk about Black economists, we are talking about them who's produced in any given year. And that's about 1%. We're talking Black in general. Black men tend to get be a larger share of economics doctorates that are awarded than Black women. And again, when we're talking Black here, we are talking folks who are permanent residents or citizens. We're not talking international students because they don't show up in the data racially. They show up as temporary residents. Um, when we think more broadly, I think our estimates show that maybe there are about four, about three to 400 Black economists, period, who have doctorates. Um, and, and, and so that's, that's not very many, but it is tough to really get a count on how many economists there are out there because um, once you get your doctorate, there really isn't a data set that then tracks you. Meaning you could get your doctorate in economics and then end up working at a bank or doing something that's not really well, related. Not only that, but you could have gotten your doctorate outside of the U.S., Oh. And then we know that often people come to the U.S. to get employment. So we wouldn't have a record of those who we would look at and phenotypically say that they are black who have Ph.D.s in economics. We don't have a way to track that. By the way, what is um, what is keeping these numbers so low? I noticed in your story that Howard is the only HBCU that has a um, doctorate program in economics. 
Um, I, I think it's a combination of things. You know, yeah. One, if you have been reading the news over probably the last five years, there was a climate study done by the American Economics Association that just talks about the hostility in in the profession. Uh, I think that's one. I think that there the second is people don't know what economics is, right? And so they often get us confused with being a business major. I'd say that those are the two, the hostility in the departments and then, um, and the, the, I shouldn't say the departments specifically, but in the profession, what's felt is hostility and that people don't know what economics is. And so often what you'll see is institutions that don't have business majors, particularly for undergrads, students will study economics because they think that that's business and they're just not the same. Um, it is difficult to get people to understand that what economists do is really to think about how do we allocate scarce resources and that's broadly defined. And then how do we set up policies to incentivize particular behaviors? And if you don't understand that's what economists do, it is very easy to be dismissive of the need for economists and economic policies. And as one email said to me, and then you focus on the need for STEM, and not economists without right. recognizing that economists are going to set the policies that incentivize the investments in STEM. All right, Rhonda, great, great stuff. Thank you so much for taking the time. Rhonda Vonche Sharp, founder and president of the Women's Institute for Science, Equity, and Race. And I'm looking at her very impressive CV. The good news is she spent time at Duke. The bad news is she also spent time at UNC Chapel Hill. So I guess they kind of cancel each other out. But uh, uh, talking about, uh, again, increasing the... Uh, number of black economists, uh, PhD level black economists uh, in the so profession. So they can be professors. Exactly right. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. As a good, as a former investment banker, I know a good fee when I see one and breaking a big company up into multiple literal pieces is a darn good That's exciting. advisory fee. Uh, I'm not sure if the Kellogg's news is anything more than that. Jen Bartash is Senior Equity Research Analyst, Consumer Staples and Retail for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins, she follows this, this industry, this company. Jen, what is Kellogg's doing here? Are they really creating value? Does this make sense to you, what they're doing, breaking up the company? Yeah, so thanks, Paul. When, when I look at this, there really is a value creation opportunity when you talk about the snacking portion of the company that will go forward. Um, if you just look at how some of the peers in the snacking category are valued, whether it's Mondelez or Hershey, there is a premium to where Kellogg currently trades. And so there is some value creation opportunity there. Um, less, a little bit less um, enthusiastic about seeing the opportunity for an independent cereal company and an independent plant-based company. So the independent plant-based company, is that trying to get the beyond meat type of multiple out there? Well, that would, in theory, be, be one of the things that they can achieve. And, and if the, you know, the Kellogg says that, um, that their plant-based business is profitable, uh, which would be a certain, certainly a differentiator in the plant-based world, and so could actually help command a pretty good premium or multiple in, in, that, in that space, um, the, the real concern is, is what happens to a cereal-based company. What happens to any of these companies after they split up? I mean, surely we've seen enough of them to understand uh, like a, a track record of these kind of splits. Yeah, it's interesting. If you look at if you look back to when Kraft Heinz and you know, Mondelez broke up, um, you know, Kraft Heinz it took them decades to actually regain a positive momentum in their core business, um, and 
And that's really maybe one of the concerns that you have when you look at the Kellogg companies is whether that that higher growth snacking company takes off kind of like Mondelez did. Um, and then how, how much effort is it going to take to really get garner the the profit margin increases and then sales increases that they think are possible for the cereal company? And then plant based, you know, it's 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 a very volatile market. So it's 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 too early to tell where that could go. All right. So, Jen, you may not know this, but I'm big, big into cereal. I'm a big cereal person. It's one of the main reasons Me I, work too, at, I work at Bloomberg. I mean, yeah. we have a strong cereal game here. Not as strong as in uh, uh, Princeton. They are big time. Inside down. tip. Yeah. They have even better cereal selections if you go down to LL2. Really? Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Talk to us about the cereal business. Is it growing at all, Jen? Well, the cereal business in the last two or three years has actually seen um, outsized growth relative to its historical performance, at least in the North American market. Um, if you look over time, it's a it's a low single digit growth category. So you're talking anywhere from one to three percent growth. The pandemic really reinvigorated cereal, brought a lot of people back to cereal, and a lot of people are still eating breakfast at home um, because they're not necessarily back in the office every day. Um, but it, it could just be a temporary bolster that's happened to extend over the period of two or three years. Um, before we start to see that category start to contract again. All right, Jen, great stuff. You know, Jen Bartasha, she's been at Bloomberg since 2002, 20 years. She's done everything. And now she's one of our top research analysts at Bloomberg Intelligence. So we appreciate getting her thoughts here on Kellogg's. Jen Bartasha, Senior Equity Research Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know... One of the things in this pandemic is the way folks, I think one of the things that changes the way folks interact with healthcare, all this telehealth really, really became front and center for a lot more people. And just the way we interact with the healthcare system is pretty interesting. Nina Decca, Senior Research Analyst for Robo Global, joins us here. Nina, you know, it's Hi. interesting. Thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about maybe some of the ways it's changed how consumers interact with, uh, you know, the healthcare system. It seems like we're doing a lot more on our own a lot more remotely. Yeah, we are. And thanks for having me on the show, by the way. Really appreciate it. Um, a couple of things really happened as a result of the pandemic. We already knew, and we've been hearing about it a lot, that there's been a skilled healthcare worker shortage. That was definitely exacerbated by the pandemic. And that's even driving uh, from a con consumer perspective, 
uh, people are having a hard time getting doctor appointments and, and getting medical care. There, there's been like two, three month wait lists to get in to see a cardiologist, for example, or to, to get knee surgery. So even though um, largely the COVID beds aren't being occupied by hospitals causing delays, the fact that there's just not enough staff is causing delays. Um, and then to your point, uh, consumers are having to do a lot of things on their own, uh, remote care, um, and they're also looking for convenience. Uh, the world got used to being able to see a doctor without having to leave their house through telemedicine. And uh, and that's just one part of a huge theme that we're going to see moving forward of virtual care, where people are going to be able to wear wearable devices um, like iRhythm, uh, ticker IRTC, has a wearable device that you can use to help diagnose um, arrhythmia and help prevent stroke and, and heart disease or and uh, and and cardiac failure. So um, so there's going to be a lot more remote monitoring. We're expecting people to start using more continuous glucose monitoring devices. That's going to be a huge mm. positive catalyst for Dexcom and Abbott. Um, so a, a lot of more DIY in healthcare and, uh, and really an exciting time to be investing in the space given the market pullback. It is, I was going to say, it's even more exciting if you want to buy at these levels. What happened to the stock uh, you were trading at 12, 13, 14, um, came down to 10 at the beginning of this year, and then all of a sudden. So, Nina, I just want to get a thoughts here just on the some of the uh, differences. We should clarify that I was looking at a different, I was looking at a different <laughs> okay. ticker. So I was wondering, <laughs> okay. uh, Nina, is it going to go back the way it was? Like one of the challenges, I guess, is labor. Like every other part of the economy has labor shortages. Is that something that's endemic, do you think, to the healthcare business going forward? It is a problem. And guess what this means? Healthcare is one of the last sectors to become digitized and automated. And there is a huge opportunity for new technology to be acquired by healthcare stakeholders to further automation. Look at uh, surgical robotics. You can do more with less. Um, all across labs, there have been um, acquisitions and, and rumors of acquisitions to acquire ways to further automate in the labs. Pharmacies, there's a huge pharmacy shortage. Uh, pharmacists are leaving the workplace, just like doctors, just like nurses. And, uh, and, and why are pharmacists, these people with expensive degrees, in the back of the pharmacy putting pills in bottles? That is all automated. And, and, and there's a huge upside potential for companies who do that. For example, OmniCell, ticker OMCL, makes robotics equipment for, hmm. uh, for pharmacists so that it frees up their time and they can help uh, with patient care. Did you know that um, medical error is a third leading cause of death in the U.S.? So if you huh. take that and then you compound that with the fact that the population is aging and you've got a healthcare worker shortage that's gotten worse by the pandemic, and you've got a situation where we're going to have even more medical errors. So it really is time to invest more in automation and AI capabilities so that healthcare workers can do what they do best, which is actually care face-to-face -face with their patients. All right. Sorry about the false stock quote. I was having a senior moment, and I might need some medication. <laughs> Um, in terms of investing, in terms of the, the strategic moves that you make, do you like ETFs? Do you like uh, active management um, over passive right now? What, what do you think we're, we're headed towards? Here's my recommendation. If everything I just said is, is sounds a little daunting to an investor, uh, let me tell you that that's just a tiny fraction of all the investment opportunities that are out there. There's regenerative medicine, there's telehealth, there's robotics, there's diagnostics, genomics. Uh, 
yeah, I would recommend an ETF. Uh, for example, our ETF is the HTEC ETF. HTEC. Yep, Healthcare yep. Technology and Innovation by RoboGlobal. And it's comprised of 80-plus companies that we picked with a team of research analysts, so we do the legwork. And it's across that breadth of, of areas across healthcare that I just mentioned, where you can really have this team of experts say, these are the best-in-class companies that are changing the face of healthcare over the next five to 10 years. And, and it really kind of alleviates the need for, uh, for the investor to have to go through sector by sector and figure out where they, where they want to invest. Like, for example, there's a company called Catalent. A lot of investors haven't heard of this name. Catalent is one of the companies Moderna partnered with to get their drug manufactured scaled and across the finish mm-hmm. line. And guess what? Now that mRNA is a proven, tested, tried therapy, global, Catalan is very well positioned for all the other mRNA therapies to come because they now they now know how to manufacture it and scale it and get it out the door. And that's just one example. So we've got a lot of those uh, really cool names. We've got in the portfolio, um, at least half the portfolio are these large cap, real steady moving right. uh, kind of mid-single, high-single-digit growers. Um, some provide dividends. So you've got that stability in there. And then about 49% of the portfolio is like the small mid-cap names that a right. lot of people probably don't already own. Hey, Nina, that's really interesting. Good stuff. Really appreciate you taking the time. Nina Deck, yeah, a senior research analyst for RoboGlobal. I first met the RoboGlobal folks in Amsterdam, which I think was maybe was or is their headquarters. But uh, they are global investors before global was cool, I'm talking 20 years ago, they were thinking about where do I invest across the media space or the technology space on a global basis. And that's kind of when I first got meet those good folks at Robo Global. Well, if in the United States, if you want to buy, I don't know, groceries, household products, health supplies, stuff like that, and you want to do it in bulk, one of the companies you can turn to is Boxed. It is a publicly traded company, B-O-X-D, is a ticker you can put in your Bloomberg terminal. Che Huang, CEO and co-founder of Boxed, joins us. Che, talk to us a little bit about your company, kind of the origins of Boxed and, and, and the market you guys are trying to serve. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me back. You know, it's been a long ride for us, uh, about almost 10 years now, uh, culminating in our public debut last year. And so started off in a garage, uh, shipping bulk consumables to folks all around the country. Uh, but since then, we've begun to sell to business folks all around the country. So whether it's office pantries, whether it's bus terminals, all the way to actually selling the software that powers our e-commerce business. So we not only sell the uh, goods, but also sell the technology that powers that business for us. So uh, how difficult is that right now with supply chain issues, with gas uh, and diesel prices? I mean, your costs must be skyrocketing. That's right. You know, it's um, uh, there's definitely have been calmer waters uh, uh, throughout this last decade of operating. That's for sure. Um, luckily for us, you know, we struck a, a really great extension, a really great kind of enhanced partnership with Federal Express. So uh, we may be able to actually be one of the few companies that lowers their transportation costs this year. But you're exactly right. Be- between labor, supply chain, inflation, there's a lot of dynamics in the marketplace right now. All right, so give us a sense of kind of how who you compete against day to day. There's so much, I think what we've all done maybe over the past two and a half years with the pandemic is really embraced e-commerce maybe more than we ever thought we would for a whole different range of products. So talk to us about the competitive environment you find yourself in. So um, what's interesting is that uh, a lot of our uh, customers, actually as of our last read, almost 70% of our customers live out in rural America or live in the deep suburbs. Uh, and so when you think about that customer, 
um, you know, folks like Costco, Sam's Club, BJ's Wholesale Club, you know, they're ubiquitous in name potentially, but not ubiquitous in location. And so we service actually a lot of folks that would otherwise go into a dollar store or their regular supermarket to shop. So they really don't have that much bulk uh, available to them. On the B2B side, of course, it's a typical kind of office depots, WB Masons of the world and some of the caterers. And on the software side, um, you see us bumping against uh, a lot of the big kind of e-commerce software companies out there. So, but you don't, I mean, Costco and BJ's, these must be competitors as well, or is it the idea that they just don't deliver? Yeah, so they've begun to deliver, especially in recent years. Uh, but when you look at kind of the experience that they really try to push, uh, it's really trying to get you in store. So uh, a lot of folks, uh, folks that we've uh, surveyed in the past, are really when they kind of, um, when you ask them anecdotally, kind of, why don't you have a Costco membership? Why don't you have uh, a membership to a wholesale club? A lot just aren't willing to uh, pay for a membership just to be able to get something delivered to them. Because remember, they don't have a warehouse club close to them. So they'll buy a membership uh, and just buy online. Uh, for a lot of them, they just don't see the value in that. So, Che, give us a sense of kind of your read on the consumer based upon your business, the trends you're seeing in your business. How do you think the, the consumer's doing, the economy's doing from the consumer's perspective? You know, if we had this conversation just a few months ago, I would say probably a lot better. Um, but I think luckily what you generally find in retail is that in kind of crazy environments that we're, that, that we're in now uh, and that we're probably going to go into uh, even more in the coming kind of weeks and months, um, you really see consumers trade up or trade down, right? Uh, um, trade down, they can go into hard discounters, dollar stores, uh, trading uh, down into kind of territory they otherwise wouldn't have uh, um, kind of gone into or shopped in, in, in kind of better times. Uh, but some consumers also trade up. And I know it's self-serving for us to say so, but the numbers in the past have shown that in recessionary environments, folks with the wherewithal actually stock up because they know they're going to go through 36 cans of sparkling water uh, a week. And if so, um, they definitely want to stock up. And by doing so, they can save some money. So I think we're going to start to see some trading up and trading down uh, across the entire retail sector, especially when it comes to consumables. I drink about that much sparkling water. Yeah, maybe a day actually for me. Yeah. Uh, I just <laughs> knock back those the polar lime flavored. Anyway, uh, it's neither here nor there. In terms of buying in bulk, um, are you like using any extra cash you have to buy your own shares? I mean, they've dropped to a dollar forty six, um, and you had been trading around ten, twelve, fourteen dollars a piece. So do you see your shares as undervalued? Uh, I personally absolutely do. So you're exactly right. Uh, we were just probably a few weeks ago, one of the best public debuts in the entire country for 2021. Uh, and then to have kind of no news come out, uh, um, absent kind of an earnings release uh, for this to happen. Uh, we just believe it's a severe dif dislocation uh, of kind of what the value of the company is and what is actually valued in the marketplace today. Um, but, you know, I, I think actions speak louder than words. So we've had two separate directors uh, file form fours, uh, making buys in the marketplace. And actually, I just bought more shares um, uh, just this past week. So, you know, one of the things we've noticed in the market, uh, Shay, when we talk to uh, fund managers and so on, is the, you know, trying to in this market so far in 2022 was a refocus on kind of the fundamentals. And it's one thing to have a great top line growth story, which you guys certainly do, but you have to deliver that to the bottom line. And I'm just looking at the FA function on the Bloomberg terminal. It looks like the street still has you negative free cash flow for the next couple of years. And so how do you think about your free cash flow, your capital structure and your ability to continue to, to grow the business? 
Yeah, you know, it, it's really a balance of all of those, right? I think uh, when kind of times were, were, were different, uh, you know, we were on this trajectory. And if you looked at our gross margin, you look at a kind of EBITDA uh, growth, we were marching towards this path each and every year we basically be in, uh, been in business. Um, but we have to adapt to the marketplace as well. So our B2B business, our software business, those are all much higher gross margin businesses than our uh, B2C consumer business. So if you just look at software, we sold $20 million of software last year at a 75 to 80% gross margin. So for us really kind of seeing how the market dynamics are in the coming weeks and really refocusing our efforts. Um, uh, if uh, uh, kind of uh, there's low tide when it comes to capital availability and overall market sentiment. So luckily we have all these different business segments, some more profitable than others, and you'll see some focus on those in the coming weeks. Jay, what's it like uh, operating a startup company or a new company? I guess you're publicly traded. It's not really startup, but in New York City, as opposed to the West Coast. Um, it, you know, back then, about 10 years ago, you know, it's kind of 10, 15 years ago when I first got into tech in New York City, it was kind of a wasteland, like meaning that, you know, there weren't a lot of folks writing checks, like everyone kind of knew each other, but man, it's, it's gotten much better, I would say, over the last few years. Still not like same, not the same as the West Coast, but definitely a lot better when it comes to the ecosystem. So, um, you know, I'll take it. But overall, you know, between supply chain challenges, going public in this market, uh, it's been a fun ride. We're learning a ton and we're still focused on the future. So we're quite bullish on the company. All right, Che, thanks so much uh, for joining us. We appreciate getting your thoughts there. Che Huang, CEO and co-founder of Boxed. That is a New York Stock Exchange listed stock. B-O-X-D is the tim uh, ticker for your Bloomberg terminal. Shipping stuff like groceries. Think about that uh, in bulk. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.